0: nervous because other authors said recording audiobooks was really a drag but I actually had fun recording this audiobook.
1: You know you're always looking for material, so I was like well it seems like my self-doubt has a lot to say. Why doesn't it do some work for once? Like write a book. It's a lovely sense
2: of remembering the book to yourself but it's also a little bit like staring into a mirror for 27 hours. Welcome to
1: This is the Author. Where authors talk about narrating their audiobooks.
0: In this episode, meet speaker Devora Heitner, comedian Aparna Nancherla, and former politician Rory Stewart. Hear Devora Heitner's insights on teens' visibility in a digital world, Aparna Nancherla on imposter syndrome, and Rory Stewart's remarkable journey through British politics. Plus, Learn what it was like for these authors to revisit their work in the recording studio. Enjoy! Hi, this is Devorah Heitner, author of Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. I wrote this book because I speak at schools and workplaces, and so many adults came up to me and said... I feel really reassured by everything you're saying about screen time and balance, but what about the fact that our kids are growing up so surveilled and exposed? How are we supposed to help them deal with that? I'm especially excited for listeners to think about young people's sharing in a more supportive way and understand that the way young people are changing the culture through their disclosures about complicated issues, is actually changing the world in a good way, right? They're destigmatizing, talking about mental health, queerness, and more. I was nervous because other authors said recording audiobooks was really a drag, but I actually had fun recording this audiobook. I prepared to record the audiobook by swimming in the mornings in Lake Michigan for several of the recording days and by trying to get enough sleep the night before the sessions. If I had to record this again, I would bring—oh, gosh, I have no idea who I would subject to that. Wow, like, why would I make somebody listen to every word of my book but also, like, repeating sentences again and again? I don't think I could bring somebody without, like, paying them, right? Everyone here is getting paid, so I don't know. I can't imagine, like, making a friend sit through this. I mean, it would be nice if I could have, like, pet my cat during the breaks, I guess. If I hadn't been able to record my own audiobook, I would have loved to have Mini Driver do it, but you'll have to settle for my voice. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm not a huge audiobook person. I do really love reading on the page. And now listen to a clip from my audiobook. There's pressure to share more of ourselves than we want. We often feel we have no other choice. To be relevant. To fit in. To get ahead to be trusted and liked, accepted and understood. This new compulsion towards self-exposure is possibly the biggest social experiment in history. We're making life-altering decisions about our personal boundaries with no guidance and no precedent. Fortunately, there is a blueprint. Anyone who's lived in the public eye as an athlete, a politician, or an entertainer
1: has navigated a version of this. Hi, this is Aparna Nancharla, author of Unreliable Narrator Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. I wrote my book because imposter syndrome, or feeling out of place or like a fraud, is something I've experienced in pretty much every area of my life professional, personal, you name it, as far back as I can remember. And I think as a creative, you know, you're always looking for new ways to seek out material. So I was like, well, it seems like my self-doubt has a lot to say. Why doesn't it do some work for once? Like write a book then if you have so many great ideas. And the thing about your self-doubt writing a book is it's not very cooperative, but this ended up being the result. So it is basically a book of personal essays about imposter syndrome written by me and ghostwritten by my self-doubt if i had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word that word would be incontrovertible i think the reason is because i use that word far too many times in the book i realized as i was reading it out loud And it means undeniable, which I'm not sure if the audiobook is, but I will say I really wanted people to know that I know how to use that word. So it feels like it does represent the subtext. I realized I had trouble pronouncing the word irrevocably. See, even there, I had to really pace my way through it. And I think I've always, when I've read it, Set it in my head as irrevocably, and if I had known that it was irrevocably, I probably would have used it entirely less. I'm excited that listeners will hear me try to voice some of these thoughts and feelings that I've kept pretty internal as a comedian and a writer voiced out loud because I think when I wrote the book, I was very much in my head. So it was an interesting process to just even hear it out loud myself. So I'm excited to see how that will land with listeners. My favorite sections to record were the shorter essays. I tend to be a rambly writer in that I love really expounding on an idea and being as wordy as possible. So I think the essays where I managed to be more concise or the pieces where I got to something faster, my voice was thankful for the break. I prepared for the audiobook recording by actually avoiding thinking about it or trying to prepare in any way. I think the idea of reading the whole 250-plus page thing was so overwhelming that I chose to not even look at it until the night before and um, I think yeah I approach many things in life this way. Last minute adrenaline rush. If I had to record again I think I would bring one of those page a day calendars like 365 page a day year calendars with like an affirmation on each one where it's like Keep going, you know, or like your worth is undeniable. And then every time I did another page of the audiobook, I'd rip off a page of the calendar. And I'd probably need two of the calendars or three to get through the whole audiobook, but I just need a lot of validation in general. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook, I would cast probably my two cats, Nenny and Zazie, to read it just because I'm very curious how they would complete the assignment if they would even be compliant at all and how badly they would troll me in their interpretation of the words. Okay, the last audiobook that I listened to that I loved is called Night Vision, Seeing Ourselves Through Dark Moods by Mariana Alessandri. This book is about basically how our society is, in general, obsessed with light and positivity and sucking things up and making the best of everything. And she, as a philosopher, kind of argues for us taking more time with, like, darker moods like sadness and grief and suffering and why they are equally worth our understanding and they shouldn't be judged as harshly as we tend to judge them. So, you know, just like a light... Beach, listen, you can take on vacation. My favorite place to listen to audiobooks is when I'm going for a walk. And I don't mean to put the author of the audiobook under the microscope too much, but I will say, like, the more engrossed I am in listening to it, the longer the walk will be. But I try not to judge, you know, if it's a shorter walk, it's not necessarily that I didn't want to listen more. It's probably just that I am avoiding. Some deadline or something. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook. I wanted to write a book about imposter syndrome because it's an identity I've embraced without question my entire life. Like being a Leo. I'm right on the cusp, but it's the more fun flamboyant one. My pragmatic Virgo heart unenthusiastically understands. Or having brown eyes. I used to think they were black, you know, like a meerkat's. But There's no wiggle room on this one, as fun as a wiggle room sounds. My scammer-identifying roots go way back.
2: Hi, this is Rory Stewart, author of How Not to Be a Politician. Well, the book is a memoir, and it's a memoir focusing on nine years, nine very, very painful years spent In politics, It was an amazing period. It was a period when the world was beginning to break apart. I entered, I guess, at quite a calm moment, 2010, when the world felt as though politics was in the center, things weren't too divided. But I then went through my political career. Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, the emergence of populist politics, Putin's increasingly threatening attitudes towards Crimea and Ukraine. So the world situation was collapsing. And domestically, Britain getting itself stuck in real problems, austerity, stagnant incomes, and increasingly angry public people losing faith in their futures. So for me, the book is an attempt to sort of step back and think about what went wrong, what went wrong with me personally, why I wasn't the politician I dreamt of being, how my ideals collapsed, what politics does to you. I wanted to feel a bit like Maybe you might read a book written about hospitals from somebody who's been a doctor on the front line or a police officer. I want you to get the sort of fly-on-the-wall, whistleblower's account taking you into the heart of what it means to be a politician. It was very, very difficult writing this book, in part because there are two big expectations on politicians writing memoirs. One is that you write a positive account in order to make your own achievements seem splendid. And often because you're still an active politician, you want to be reelected. So you want to give a sense that you're absolutely in control and things are going well. The second expectation on politicians writing memoirs is they're supposed to be inspiring the next generation by being wonderfully optimistic and idealistic. And of course, I haven't done those things. I've tried to be pretty brutal about the reality of what it's like. I hope I'm brutal enough about myself. I mean, sometimes I'm being pretty brutal about other people about dishonesty, about careerism, about complete incompetence. But I hope I'm also reflecting on myself and the many ways in which I found myself incredibly ill-equipped for the job that I was doing. I mean, let's just put it at the most dramatic. Politicians in the United States or the United Kingdom are controlling almost half the gross domestic product of their countries. They are literally responsible for hundreds of billions of dollars worth of expenditure that touch on every aspect of your life your schooling, your health care, your defence, your roads. And yet we are so painfully ill-equipped for these jobs because we spend most of our time, and I hope you get this in the book, worrying about getting re-elected. You know, my neighbour in Connecticut was spending 120,000 hours, she calculated, over two years just raising money. I remember Mitt Romney saying to me, when I was leaving Harvard and about to join politics, he said, do your thinking now because you're not going to have any time to think when you're a politician. So much of the energy is going into how do you campaign? How do you get funds? How do you stick it to the opposition? How do you appear in a television interview? And that activity rewires your brain and means that you're not actually very well prepared for governing that the qualities you need to run a country well, patience, nuance, humility, listening to complexity, are just stripped out of you by the daily life of being a politician. And so I do feel sad that I'm not able to write a more optimistic book, but I think it's vital that somebody's honest. I think it's vital that somebody explains just how mad democratic politics has become because the only hope we have of changing it of getting a better political system, getting better people into politics is if we acknowledge what a mess we're in. The one word that I would find to describe recording my own book is bizarre. I mean, it's an extraordinary experience. I recorded it in Amman in Jordan, sitting in a soundproof room with a producer called Issa on the other side and somebody called David who was in a book-lined room in Edinburgh looking at me through Zoom. And... David was getting up at, was six in the morning his time, so we could begin recording eight in the morning my time, doing it on weekends because I've got a day job. I run a charity called Give Directly. And it's very, very, very odd. You're hearing your own voice. You're being reminded of your own words. Quite a lot of the time you're thinking, oh my goodness, did I really write that? Because of course you're recording when it's a bit too late to change the printed text. It's a lovely sense of Remembering the book to yourself, remembering what's good and less good about your writing. But it's also a little bit like staring into a mirror for 27 hours. It makes you a little bit self conscious. The words, of course, I found most difficult to pronounce were the Latin words in the dedication. I love that piece of Latin. And in fact, the translation, the dedication to my wife from Laudatio Curiae, is written by me, it's my own translation. But there's all the difference in the world between my slowly reading in Latin and having to trip it off my tongue as though I really meant it. The only other word that worried me, and I don't quite know where it came from because usually every word I use in a book is a word that I use in everyday life. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the book. But for some reason, the word immiscible has found its way into the book, not a word that I use in everyday life. And certainly when I saw that on the page, I thought, immiscible? I'm excited that listeners will have a chance to really be taken into the heart of a parliamentary debate, get a sense of the different body language, the voices, but I'm also excited that they can go into the more private parts of politics, the discussions within the cabinet room, the discussions in departmental meetings, hear the voices of MPs and ministers and future prime ministers. My favourite section to record was the section of Liz Truss trying to talk to me about policy. This bizarre individual who became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for just over 40 days and trying to bring to life what it was that made her become Prime Minister as well as what it was that meant she barely lasted more than a month. I prepared for the audiobook recording by packing a little backpack in my house in Jordan because this is all taking place in Jordan in the Middle East, putting in two enormous thermoses of tea, because obviously I'm British, so I've got milky tea with sugar in it, and carrying jam sandwiches. The key thing was going out into the blazing hot Jordan sunshine at about midday in order to eat my strawberry jam sandwich. If I had to record this again, I would bring into the studio with me a chicken sandwich. I've realized that having to do six or seven days eating only strawberry jam because I'm too lazy to prepare anything for my lunch except for a jam sandwich was probably a mistake. My nutritional deficiencies are gonna show through if I have to do this at this length again. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook myself, I would beg Stephen Fry to do it. I've been listening to his recordings of Harry Potter and it is unbelievable that he can keep in his head 18 totally different characters, 18 totally different voices and keep the story going. So next time round, Stephen Fry. The last audiobook that I listened and that I really, really loved was a recording of, to many people, slightly obscure, but very, very great 18th century comic novel called The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy. And the reason I want to give a shout out to it is it was recorded initially by a volunteer for the Royal National Institute of the Blind. This was in the days when audio books were produced for free for people who couldn't read. And this is a recording by a man called Peter Barker, And it's incredible what he does because this 18th century prose, the sentences are often two or three pages long. And somehow he manages to keep all the joy and humor in his voice and give a sense of the sentence structure stretching on word after word after word without ever getting his intonation wrong. In fact, it's almost impossible to understand the book. I find reading it on the page. But when you listen to Peter Barker reading it, the whole thing comes alive. I love listening to audiobooks in three situations. One of them is on aeroplanes when I want to relax. The second, I think, like many people, of course, is in bed when I'm trying to go to sleep. And the third thing is when I want my mood to be lifted and I want to change perspective. I'll often go for a walk in the sun with an audiobook in my ear and really enjoy being transported while walking through the sunny streets of Jordan to C.S. Forrester's account of a naval battle during the Napoleonic Wars. And now you might perhaps enjoy listening to a clip from my audiobook. We are seated on unstable cream leather bar stools arranged in a shallow curve. The slogan, Our Next Prime Minister, is printed on the floor. There is no live audience, nor any room for one on this narrow studio stage. A wall, however, is occupied by a giant screen on which citizens will appear. Five men, one job, says the presenter, Emily Maitlis, to one of the cameras. She is dressed in imperial purple. This is the Author is a production of Penguin Random House Audio. Thank you for listening.
0: For more behind-the-mic content and audiobook recommendations, visit www.penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash next listen.